Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ever briefly looked something up and found yourself interested to the point of distraction, passing into some realm that, once entered, is extremely hard to get out of. It might be Japan or tennis or Spanish enclaves or Peppa Pig or tax law or Alfred Hitchcock. But the more you look, the further down the rabbit hole you go. If so, you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, the disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello, rabbit holers. Hello. Hello. Are we rabbit holers or yeah. is it the public? I think it's, isn't it us? Okay. We're the rabbit hole detectives. Okay. Are we not that? That's Who are strange. the rabbit holers? It's existential crisis already. No, no, no it's I'm fine. So too. <laughs> 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 I did see a really interesting tweet that you wrote, Richard. Ooh. And I wanted to ask you if you got an answer because I didn't follow up and look at it. It said, when a rocket launches into space and the fuel bit separates and falls away, is it recovered? Well, Did you find out? Yeah, I mean, rejoice in Jack Dorsey's Twitter. I don't know about Elon Musk's Twitter, but that's relevant, actually, because I've always wondered that, you know, especially in an era where we're very concerned with conservation and low impact and everything, space rockets, I guess, are never going to be eco-friendly. But what do you do with the big bit Mm. that separates from the fuel cell and falls away into the sea, onto the land, whatever happens? Well, often they are lost, but Elon Musk and the SpaceX thing, they recover and reclaim them the recovery and the recycling is actually built into the unit some things don't fall to earth other space rubbish so there is actually a discipline of space archaeology already because of all of the things out there Mm because there's a hell of a lot of stuff all the satellites all the rubbish i'd love to get on one of those field trips (laughs) (laughs) take a while (laughs) you know but i mean I, i know that it's a big place space but presumably Rubbish accumulates yes. and it's in orbit. Yeah. And Sandra Bullock found in that movie. <laughs> yeah, she did. Whistling around. Yeah. Dangerous, isn't yeah. it? Well, that's interesting because it might occasion, very sadly and tragically, the deaths of people. And if you die in space, I wonder 
Well, you won't decay, will you? There's no decomposition in space. Well, so it's just natural. Well, the, well, you would decompose inside your some. suit, would you? Or would you freeze? If you would just inside, freeze. Well, it depends. Are you actually out in space or are you in the rocket or the space station? You're still thinking you're suited and booted. Well, I think you wouldn't you be inert if you were in space. I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. I if only there were a disembodied voice who could... It would be great, out. wouldn't it, so to find out? <gasps> I think we might... <laughs> Depending on the circumstance, you would either be frozen, dried out, slowly rotting or decomposing naturally, in which case the rest of the crew would need to find a way to store or dispose of you. Well, I guess so, because your internal mm. chemistry would take care of it, wouldn't it? Mm. Well, and You can't just sort of leave the body outside and... One of my daughter's boyfriends was flying over from South Africa and asked the passenger next to them what they were going to London for, and he said a heart operation, and then they died mid-flight. And it's quite interesting. What do they do with the body if you die on a flight? You well, don't put it in the loo. I thought you'd tuck <laughs> it in the loo, but they yeah. can't lose the loo for the whole flight. And it depends how full the flight is. It was a full flight. So actually, the stewardesses were in tears, but they wrapped the body in a sort of tin foil, and my future son-in-law had to sit next to this corpse. Yeah, they leave to, them in place, don't mm, they? It happened to somebody I knew on Concord, died on Concord and was just covered in blankets. And fortunately, it was a short flight. But burial customs. Now, this is the thing that I wanted to talk about. Yes, that brings us really neatly to our first topic. So It's a huge topic, isn't yeah. it? Because it's something everybody everywhere has done at one time or another. As a former vicar, vicar of Finden, um, it was something I actually had a professional interest in and did regularly, but very conscious that my church, which was built in the 14th century, replacing a Norman building, which replaced the Saxon building, stands on a site with yew trees around it that are pre-conquest, and presumably was a site of burial before Christianity ever arrived, because people have always needed to dispose of their dead. And the ways in which they've done it have been many and various and fascinating. I'm a Christian priest, so we have our own way of doing things, and we do it so often it seems familiar to us and maybe not unusual. But you don't have to travel far to see people doing all sorts. Wonderful customs in Mexico. I was in Mexico earlier this year, just uh, last year, just after All Saints Day. And they have these tombs, which, are, which have these sort of tabletops around them. You, you see them in Scotland quite often. That's not a decorative feature. They literally are tabletops, because at All Saints and All Souls, people come back to the graves, and they have a do. They have a meal. They have flowers and they recall the dead who are believed to walk abroad that night to come to life again because our burial customs have a pragmatic function, which is a hygienic one, basically to dispose of bodies in ways that don't pose a risk. But they're also ways of trying to give ourselves reassurance against the reality of death and the blunt fact of death. So often burial customs seek to preserve elements of the living at the same time as disposing of what remains of the dead body and soul kind of stuff we love the viking well actually i say love the viking vikings were particularly brutal there was the one where if a chief died a slave a female slave of his retinue whatever it was would be strangled and stabbed by the matriarch of that particular community so there's one story this this comes from um by the volga river actually so it's this arab traveler who travels up he's actually a missionary comes to this this group of the rus who are the sort of you can kind of call them eastern vikings and he observes this amazing funerals we've got a first hand account of a 10th century funeral of a chieftain and he describes exactly this happening but he actually interesting so there is a a, a girl a slave girl uh, or young woman uh, who is sacrificed they actually ask who would like to accompany 
the chieftain and they ask the boys and the girls. So it doesn't have to be a, a woman. And, and this girl says, I will go. So she becomes the wife of the chieftain in, in the, the afterlife. afterlife. And she is then, they have this elaborate 10 day ceremony of the whole funeral. And so she's sort of treated like this complete star of the show actually uh, and he's all he's gruesome in the end because obviously she, she dies but um, is that the account i've read where the sort of senior men in the tribe all get to sleep with her as yeah well, so and... she she goes into all their tents so there's about six men she goes into the tents and so she sleeps with them before the end of the whole thing and, and they sort of say i'm only doing this for you my my chief <laughs> you think really <laughs> but uh that's all part of it as well so this is sort of the whole community <laughs> i think it's a really interesting question there about just how willing were these participants at the cost of their own lives yeah. because it's necessary isn't it for the kind of tribe to present it as such but if you look at this fascinating evidence you know this is in your department not my department cat about victims of sacrifice in mesoamerican cultures mm. who voided themselves before their deaths because clearly they were absolutely terrified that they realized they were about to die and i'm not sure that people go gently into that good night do they it's interesting though, because especially with the one, it's a lot written about this particular funeral, the Viking one, because if you're at that part of society, this is somebody very low in society, if you actually genuinely believe that the afterlife is just a continuation of this life, it doesn't necessarily matter how this life ends because you go to the better thing. Yeah. And if you're a slave and actually you have a pretty miserable, awful life and you get elevated. So she's it's a sort of social mobility for, for this particular Person and would well. the family so, be encouraging her then? Do you think they may well have done? I and mean, we know, I think, in other parts of the world, these sacrifices it's it's, a, it's sort of seen as an honour to give one of your mm. but it, two. But again, there's an interesting evidence about the practice of sati or sooty, as it's sometimes called in in Indian culture, where the widow of the deceased man would jump onto the pyre to expire mm. on her late husband's funeral pyre. But there are lots of accounts of widows really not wanting to do that. Of course, that's also patriarchy at work, isn't it? Where the woman's body and indeed life becomes subject to the needs of a male hierarchy. Absolutely. And I, I suppose it's also a social way of dealing with the widows, you know, and inheritance and, and so many other things, I think, than the actual just beliefs that are sort of wrapped up it's in very that. Very tidy. Yeah. Tidy and useful. But you do love a burial. I mean, it's interesting. I, most people that I know when they die will have a reasonable expectation that they will be in hospital. And then they will go to a funeral director and they will be perhaps cremated, buried, or maybe a woodland burial or something. Mm. And that's all the detail they know, particularly. Mm. I know much more about how what's going to happen to me because I know where I'm going to be buried. And I've already chosen, commissioned, and paid for the monument that's going over me. And I know what it'll look like because I'll have the burial of a priest, which is different from the burial of lay people in the mm. Christian tradition. What happens to priests that's different? Well, we are dressed in vestments, oh, so wonderful. we go into our graves vested for the Eucharist. We hold the tools of our trade, a chalice and a pattern, a cup and a plate, silver cup and plate. And also, we this is the interesting one, we face the other direction. So our feet are towards the east mm. and our heads are towards... No, sorry, if you're a lay person, your feet are towards the east and your head is towards the west. If you're a priest, your head is towards the east. and your, Because the idea is when Christ comes again from the east, like the rising sun, we rise to meet him and greet him, mm. but the priest rises to greet the people yes. like he mm. or she did in life. How interesting. So that's a thing. And how long is that been the case how far back does that tradition go middle ages i should think yeah but that's the, that's the sort of western custom in eastern if you're an orthodox priest your body is laid out and washed by your other by other priests oh, okay. 
that's not a job I'd particularly wish to. Well, if you're free, Charles. <laughs> but I think you, you, Charles, and usually you two know what you're, how you're going to end up, don't you? Yeah, I know where I'll end up, which is in the family tombs that have been there for 500 years. And they're, they're a beautiful add-on to a very ancient church in Northamptonshire. So, yes, I mean, they've got simpler and simpler over the years. Beautiful, very ornate statues by Nollikins or great sculptors of their day going back all that way. And, and the classic medieval ones with the man lying there in his armour and his wife next to him dutifully. And the uh, dogs. And the dogs there, exactly. Through to quite modern where it's just a plaque on the wall now. It's pretty cluttered in there. But you want to be with your ancestors. I've seen bodies, as not as many as you, Vicar, but, you know, the point being that once you're finished with engine, it's over, isn't it? I, I'm not very concerned about my... But what was, the, the other thing, I remember you telling me this once, is that if you succeed to a title, I assume that the minute the person you inherited from dies, then you become whatever it might be. But I think you said that the custom is not to be addressed as such until after the funeral. Have yes, that's right. I wonder if that goes back to a time when there were more accidents about when mm. people were dead and actually committed to the earth. I had a great, great grandmother whose tomb has a bell on it because she had heard of a friend of hers who had been wrongly buried and she was terrified of it. So she had a bell with a little pulley put on the top of her grave in case she woke up. It's, it was very common, oh, actually. People were so frightened of being buried alive that um, that, that was, in fact, you can ring my... Well, there's expressions that come from that. I think Slim. we've got Sorry, a common from our voice. disembodied voice. Saved by, the ve- saved by the bell is the term. It's saved the, by the official term. Uh, is that just point, Yeah, just I your point. A boxing term. I thought it was, you know, the, yeah. the bell goes and you... Just your point on priests buried facing to the west. Bishop Guillaume Durand of Mend in southern France brought it in at the end of the 13th century. Thank you very there much. Go. There you go. Right. Is it like um, a christening? Is anyone allowed to attend a funeral? I think so. Yeah, I thought so. It's in a church. Yeah. I mean, you would say family only, but all that. But you can't really force that no. stuff. And again, this sense about to what extent is is a funeral a private affair? I mean, it was why you'd have the difference between. So when David, my partner, died, he was a priest. We had all the priests. He was received into church the night before, which is the custom, and the coffin lay in church overnight with the pall on it, which is this big giant cloth. And there's a cross and a Bible left on the Bible, and then the candles burn around it, all this stuff. Awkwardly, his funeral was in the afternoon the next day, and there was a funeral in the morning of somebody else. So I had to come in in the morning and shunt him into a into a vestry Goodness. to have this other funeral and then shunt him out again to put oh, him back dear. in place. So, but that is the nature of ritual, isn't it? There is always yes. a front of house, what you see on the stage and what you see backstage. So that's an interesting and one. When did cremation come in as a... Uh, a strong possibility uh, in the regular church in England. Quite late, actually. There was a famous Welshman whose name I can't remember, but he was the sort of pioneer of cremation. And he had he cremated his baby son who was called Jesus, Jesus Price. I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere in Wales. And this is in the 19th century. And mm. he was an extraordinary kind of druidic, prophetic person, constantly getting into... And maybe the disembodied voice can look this guy up. William Price. William Price. Thank you. And his son was called Jesus, I think, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Christened Jesus Christ, born to him at the age of 83. Yeah, and because it was South Wales, they built an enormous pyre out of Welsh coal. And uh, it eventually led to the movement to cremation. But still in Catholic countries, in Italy, cremation is still very rare. But of course, in other cultures, cremation is half of the course is what you do hindus for example yes was it not a hygiene thing and was was it not related to space as well in cemeteries and actually having to solve the massive problem of not having space for all their burials it depends on where you go for example being buried six feet under 
is a lot to do with with actually the stench of death, actually. Yeah. That they're buried at that depth because then you don't get the deeply disturbing. You've ever smelt that smell, you won't forget it. It's horrible. And there's a part of us that just recoils from it, mm. an organic thing, perhaps. But in some cultures, that's not the case. In some indigenous American cultures, they bury people in hollow trees. So they, they find a tree, a hollow tree, and they stick the body in that. In other places, people, the bodies are left out to rot because it's thought that that... And the reason why you would do that is because more important than hygiene is the destination afterlife of the person you buried. And so to decay naturally might be seen as an essential part of them having an afterlife that would be an afterlife you would want them to have. What happens in... I think it was about Viking burials. So yeah. the, I like the idea of some chieftain being loaded onto a longboat mm. with a whole load of, you know, piles of tinder around and then pushed out offshore and then someone sends Lit a flaming arrows. arrow. Yeah, and then it the burns way. and disappears over the horizon. Now, I don't know if that actually happened, but also now I want to know what happened. Very noble what way. it came back in on the tide? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a risky thing, isn't it? Because it could go terribly wrong. We don't know if that actually happened, but we do, there's a hell of a lot of bodies that we've not found there's not enough bodies for the number of vikings that we've had so it probably did happen they probably did set fire to them at sea but we actually don't know and you wouldn't find them that's the other thing they would be completely lost and would that be for a high status individual yeah but they did so many things there wasn't one specific thing so you could have cremations you can have inhumations you can have these huge ship graves with a big mound there's no rule it was sort it's of it's interesting with that whole burial at sea thing as well off Malta, which has long been a Royal Navy base, there are sort of pockets of areas where naval men have been buried. And I had a great uncle who died, having gone through the First World War and won a chest full of medals from various countries uh, in motor torpedo boats. He died playing polo on Malta. And because he had this reputation for bravery, they buried him at sea in the same spot where they had just buried a Victoria Cross holder. So there comes a sort of ready myth, very ready-made myth of where you belong in, in the fields of death, really. I once spoke to a very old former ship's doctor who remember the days when you, people, you could be buried at sea in that tradition where you can't do it now, actually. It's um, health and safety <laughs> um, or marine conservation or something. But in those days, so they did one burial. It was... A, it was it was not a sailor, but somebody wanted to be buried as he had been a sailor. And so they hadn't done it in years, so they arranged the little chute thing, and the ship's carpenter had knocked up a coffin and that kind of thing. And so they had a re they had a rehearsal before the grieving family and friends arrived, and it was all set up, and then accidentally they released the coffin, and before anyone turned up, the coffin disappeared under the waves of the Atlantic. So they actually got a big sack of potatoes from the galley and um, buried, in fact, for the funeral, <laughs> a sack of potatoes. <laughs> Everything can go wrong, right? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Now, did you find any particularly interesting facts to finish off with? Well, my favourite one is to do with Zoroastrian. Now, Zoroastrians in India like to put the body on top of a tower and then vultures come and do their work. And that's considered to be the most proper and seemly way to dispose of the person, that's a very sacred thing. But that's created a problem for air traffic controllers because the belief is, much as the sort of English legal idea of per chalum and enferos, that kind of legal obligations extend from 
the depths of hell to the heights of heaven. It's the same with these towers. They're marked in red on maps, and you can't fly over them because it's considered that your 747 might interrupt with the ascent to the afterlife of the Goodness. person on top of the tower. So they have to, all around Mumbai, they have to do these kind of strange, circuitous routes so as not to fly over these towers. Incredible, isn't it? I quite like that. Imagine going for a pint at the dodged tower or something. I know what's the most unusual pub name. Well, so I happen to yeah, know that. that leads us nicely. I we do. thought that you might tell us about pub names. Well, there are some very good ones. There's one street in Manchester that has the longest pub name in England, and the next door is the shortest. And the, the longest one is the old 13th Cheshire Astley Volunteer Rifleman Corps Inn in Stalebridge, Manchester. And the pub with the shortest is two doors down. It's called the Q Inn, just a letter, Q. The most popular one is the Red Lion, then the Rose and Crown, the Royal Oak. And then it goes a slightly more obscure, Hope and Anchor, Three Horseshoes and Queen's Head. But they all have a particular reason why they became very popular names. And I think it's a reflection of this country's very long history that uh, they came about. The Red Lion was from a, the heraldic uh, shield of James VI of Scotland, who succeeded Elizabeth I in 1603. And he was very keen to put his stamp on important buildings throughout England to show essentially that the Scots had taken England uh, by storm under his kingship. So that became very popular. And that's, that's well ahead. There's over 500 of those in England. The second one, Rose and Crown, is another one. It's from Edward III's time. Royal Oak, I have a particular interest in because um, I wrote a while ago about Charles II's escape. So in 1651, Charles had a very unhappy invasion of England, which was under Parliament at the time, having had his father, Charles I, executed. Charles II tried to unseat Parliament, invaded from Scotland with a bunch of very unsophisticated Scots in their army. Indeed, his artillery, the cannon, were made of leather. It wasn't a very strong army at all. Leather. And they managed to get to Worcester and then were beaten in Worcester in September 1651. And Charles II went on the run. And the most famous episode in his six weeks on the run for his life, he would have been executed if caught because he'd been declared a, a traitor, was hiding in an oak tree in a forest in the, in the northwest of England. And he hid up this tree with a man called William Careless. He put his life in the hands of a man called Careless. But they managed to pull off this incredible escape with the parliamentary army sweeping below them. So the, the reason that the Royal Oak is so popular was because when Charles II eventually came back for the restoration, when the Stuarts reclaimed the throne, he bored everyone rigid about his great escape. He even did it on his journey back to England in some triumph. He told the assembled crowd, guess what happened the last time I was in England? And Samuel Pepys, the diarist, was on the ship and wrote down this account and then tracked down everyone who had helped the king. And the Royal Oak is a memento of a great moment, a great royal episode. What happened to Mr. Careless? Careless was very much <laughs> rewarded. It's interesting, actually, because Charles II was quite good at rewarding the people who helped him. There was a, a really odd bunch. A lot of Catholics hid him because they had places to hide people because they had been persecuted themselves. They had priest holes, etc. And then some quite basic yeomen, the Pendrel family. I met a man called Mr. Pendrel up in Shropshire a few years ago, and his family was still getting £150 a year for having helped save the life of the king in 1651. He was slightly miffed it hadn't been index-linked, I remember, <laughs> well, the reward. Be. But yeah. um, they, they, Careless was, a, was given a big reward. 
And um, they were all looked after very well when Charles II came back. I, I, when Charles II came back and took England in 1660, he'd been living a horrible life in sort of inns in Cologne and, you know, grubbing around, looking for pennies wherever he could to keep himself afloat. And then when he got the crown of England, I think he thought it was rather like winning the Euro lottery. Yeah. Had a lovely time, didn't he? He did. Didn't take it too seriously, really. But you have these other names of pubs are connected to different parts of English history. So... There was a time where you just had an object outside your door to show you were a pub and to, you know, people were illiterate, so they needed to see the sign. So if you have a pub in your village or down the street that's called the Plough, it's very likely that there was a plough put outside there so people knew where to find you. And then you have uh, ones connected very much with the beer trade. So you'd have the wheat sheaf or whatever as your sign. A lot of declarations of loyalty to the crown that was very important. So the Queen's head wasn't to do with either of um, the least fortunate of Henry VIII's wives. It was to do with a sort of declaration of loyalty to maybe Elizabeth I or Victoria. It'll be interesting to see if we now have any pubs called the Queen Elizabeth II, because it's a tradition in England not to call a pub the name of the reigning monarch. You can only do it after they've uh, died. Are there any Edward VIII's? I've not come across an Edward VIII pub. I mean, he was only king for, what was it, 11 months or something. But I just wondered if, because there are there, there, there are red pillar boxes, aren't there, with Edward VIII's yes. cipher on, I think. Not many. Yeah. And of course, I, I used to, I, in my nerdy youth, I used to collect pennies. And uh, the, the Edward VIII one was the one to have. I've got one for you, Charles. This is, I was in Sheffield yesterday. Yes. And there's a pub I came across called the Penny Black. Yes. And I thought, how interesting the pub should be named after a stamp. And it's a modern building, but I found out that it was built on the site of where the general post office had been. You'll often find them on a place of some sort of past trade, as it were. And you, you get some quite gruesome names as well. The Penny Black's rather sophisticated, but you have all sorts that are connected to maybe just an incident, not a trade, not a king. There's one called the Bucket of Blood in Hale, named after the well in the pub. Somebody put the pail down to get some water and out came blood. And then they discovered there was a murder victim lying there. So it's extraordinary. And if you get two names, that's often an amalgamation of a pub because after the Gin Act came in to try and control the sale of gin, some folded because they couldn't get the license to sell gin. And so you'd get an amalgamation of names. And others were to do with popular sports or pursuits. The fox and hounds is very common. Can I tell you one in Northamptonshire? I mean, is, and I've never seen this anywhere else. In Earthlingborough, I'm not sure if it's still there. I don't think it is. But there was a pub called the Sow and Pigs. And it had on one side of the pub sign a picture of a sow and pigs. On the other side, it had molten steel being poured into molten. There were ironworks oh, there. Yes. And that's also a sow and pigs. Yes. So it was both a post-industrial and a pre-industrial Sour and pig sign. I don't know if I've, I've never seen that anywhere else. You know how pubs originate really as inns relating to pilgrims and yes. travellers and quite often linked to religious institutions and yeah. monsters. Are there any religious names or are, they, are there any sort of They're allowed links? to be. Are they They're allowed, allowed to, be? to be. So the cross keys. There are a lot of religious references, but after the Reformation, people were very nervous about being seen as some sort of Catholic haunt. So that's why you get a lot of general royal, the crown or whatever. Yeah. People wanted to also, they didn't want to change their name and the king changed. But going back to the religious institutions, absolutely, there was a huge trade for inns and pubs in pilgrims passing by. 
and also equally highwaymen. It's because there were active people around there. In fact, there's there's a lady called Lady Catherine Ferrers from Markiate in Hertfordshire, who turned a highway robbery out of boredom. Also, she had some gambling debts to sort out. But anyway, she was eventually killed in a fight. And the wicked lady at Wheatamstead in Hertfordshire is named after her. There's a film of that, a famous black and white film. Oh, really? The Wicked Lady, yeah, from the 1930s, I think. Yeah. But I think that these pubs, they started, we think, in uh, Roman times as taverns for the marching legions. So particularly along what is Watling Street or Ermine Street, this is where you get the first ones uh, cropping up. Also, there was a lot of wine growth in England because the climate was very different in Roman times. So they probably started as wine places rather than beer, although beer would have been served. And in fact, again, referencing Northamptonshire, Richard, you know where we are, there are huge vineyards. Um, really? Outside Wellingborough, there was an, uh, they found one, a 90-acre Roman vineyard recently. Yeah. Trying to find one, aren't we? We're trying to find one. Yeah. Kat and I are trying to find one right now. Well, yeah. I wish you the very best. It's interesting you bring that up, Charles, because Findon, which is just outside Wellingborough, where I was vicar, has the oldest pub in England. Now, I know that to mm, say such mm. a thing is to invite, mm. but I would say that the claim for the bell in Findon is, is the oldest licensed pub in England, for a licence was granted to an inn in Findon by Queen Edith, who, as you know, was the wife of Edward the Confessor, who was the lady of the manor of Findon. And it's 1041 is the date that's given. So there are two mm. two or three that claim it. I'm not sure they're licensed, so you're probably right. There's one from 947, yeah, and there's one from 550-something, which yeah. sounds a bit it of a really But problem. none of them are. There's no, there's actually no, because I looked into this recently with an expert in it, and there are no pre-conquest records of actual licenses or anything like that that are real and there are no so buildings book would be the first, yeah would it? well yeah but there are none there are no pubs in Doomsday but, but where would apparently. a reference come in the literature to there having been a license granted to no a pub in the manner of queen Edith in 1041 it's, I think it's just made up does our disembodied voice know, is so the question. The porch house in Stone the World, 947 AD, as Charles said, is authenticated by the Guinness Book of Records as England's oldest inn. There are no Edward VIII pubs, and the Sour Pigs does no longer exist in the town that you mentioned. Really? Oh. Can I give you some other names, which I think are brilliant? There's the Drunken Duck. You know, you won't find a Devonshire Arms in Devon, although you'll find three in Derbyshire because of the Dukes of Devonshire. And there's the Eagle and Child in Oxford, which is famed as the meeting place of the writing group that uh, of it's the Inklings. Yeah, that's where J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis used to meet, and that was named the Burden Baby by Oxfordians. Which so I can strap upon Avon, the Black Swan, which is the actors' pub near the theatre, is known as the Dirty Duck by the actors. A name invented by American GIs during World War Two. Was it? Mm. I didn't know that. Mm. Pubs are in a parlour state, Charles, aren't they? People in the licensed trade, yes. there are very few of them now. And I mean, in somewhere like Findon, in not that distant memory, there were four pubs in Findon. Mm. It's down to one now. I always like midnight mass at Findon because the pub would kick out at 11.30 and everyone would just come up the hill to church. And pub and church <laughs> both played their part as steady presences in a changing world. They were us at a heartbeat of the village, weren't they? they were, when I used to live in the village of Grafton Underwood in Northamptonshire, where there was a pub, but the pub was closed by a Duchess of Buccleuch, the Buccleuch it was on the Buccleuch estate, who was an evangelical Christian in Victorian England or late Georgian England. And when the railways came through, she didn't want drunken navvies to threaten the virtue of the maidens of Grafton Underwood. So she closed the pub and opened instead a reading room 
<laughs> and you see that sometimes, the places where there were pubs, they're now reading, which was in this fit of piety. Landlords would expect their tenants to go and read improving pamphlets rather than drink ale. Yes. Disembodied voice. In 2019, according to the British Beer and Pub Association, there were 47,200 public houses in the UK, but the number has been declining steadily for several decades. From 2000 to 2019, pub numbers fell by 13,600 or 22%, and that was pre-the pandemic. So, okay. I guess cheap alcohol bought in yeah, supermarket alcohol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I just think that what I learned on this was the whole idea that this is a sort of uh, living testimony to the past history of this country from the Roman times through more religious times and post-Reformation. And my, my favourite fact is that I've seen several times the Marquis of Granby as a title of a pub. And this was a senior military man in the 19th century who spent the equivalent now of £4 million setting up any wounded non-commissioned officer in his regiment with a pub as their livelihood after they were wounded. So they remembered him. They named their pubs after him. I know that's fascinating. Because I've seen mm. lots of Marquis of Granby's mm-hmm. and I always wondered why. What a decent thing to have done. Mm. Very good. So... Kat, time to put the spotlight on you. I'm very interested in farming and particularly organic farming. And I was wondering if you could tell us what you found out about fertilizers. Yeah, and it is really interesting, actually. I wasn't so interested in the current synthetic and artificial fertilizer. But actually, if you go back in time, what have people been using? And there are some actually some quite incredible and some quite disturbing <laughs> stories in this. But, you know, if we look back, people have, as long, I think as long as people have been farming, they've quite quickly had to realise that they need to improve their soils because as you plant and you use the soils, the nutrients disappear and you have to get things like nitrogen and potassium and these sort of chemicals that help your crops grow really well. So I think the simplest thing is just using manure. So you people just realise that where their cows were walking, things grew really well as well because you have all the, the cow dung. So we know that, you know, obviously for, for thousands of years, people have been doing that. And in my own research as an archaeologist, the most nerdy thing I've ever done is, is to study soils and fertilisers and use of manure. But it was actually on uh, Rapa Nui. So it's looking at the soils on East Island and Rapa Nui, which is this sort of really quite tricky landscape. How do you... Where is it? In the Pacific, sort of oh, three... East Island. East Island, yeah, Rapa Nui. I'd love to go there. I know. I actually, have, I've studied my research and work, but I haven't been. Right. So we, we must go. Should we do a field trip? Should we do a sort of special we episode? We should do an episode from there. Can yes. yes. Voice. Brilliant. Yes. Easter Island. Producers sitting yes. there going, yes, yes. of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so you've got this really difficult landscape, middle of nowhere, and people were farming. How do you do that when there's, you know, this is really difficult... So we were looking at soils and we were looking at nitrogen in the soil and trying to work out. And people were manuring, but they were using chicken waste, especially. Mm. So you'd have your garden and you let your chickens run around. And then they were also using guano and the history of guano, which is seabird droppings, Mm. is huge. Going back to the early 1800s, there was this realisation that seabird poo was an absolutely extraordinary fertiliser. And so you have, essentially, you get to this point where almost the entire Western world runs on guano. (laughs) This huge industry. They start to realise that it is so good for the soils, that all these little islands, especially in the Pacific, so parts of outside Peru, for example, are exploited, essentially shipped just tons and tons and tons of the stuff, including back to Britain. It's called guano. Is it a Latin American word? I think we're going to have to ask the 
disembodied voice. voice. Oh, it's quite that it does sound like a Spanish word. I yeah, think I think it probably is. Yeah. And it's something that seems to, it's been used, at least as an earliest record, is about the 1600s of mm. the South Americans using it and actually guarding these resources. Imagine being the first person to go to market and say, do you want to grow your crops better? Well, cover mm -hmm. them in, in seagull shit. Well, people got very rich. They Beckford. did. Was it was Beckford? a very productive Be industry. Uh, yes, the Gibbs family. Was it William Beckford, who was the richest man in England, made inherited a guano fortune? Oh, we got disembodied voice. Oh. Uh, first known use, 1604. It's Spanish, the etymology. Uh, from Quecha, Wanu, fertilizer or dung. Oh, there you go. Could you look up William Beckford and see if he did inherit a guano fortune? Well, there was a man called Gibbs, and they, there was a ditty about him. How did you remember it? Well, it's something about his Gibbs and his dibs, which was his house. And it said something like, he made his money from the turds of foreign birds. Really? <laughs> yeah, that was in Victorian times. Well, there's Muck. There's yeah, Brass. Yeah. But he was, that was South America too. Yeah. Was, yeah. So it became so important, especially Americans who were uh, really trying to get more and more of it. So they ended up passing an act, which was called the Guano Islands Act in 1856, where they allowed any American citizen who found guano on an unclaimed, uninhabited island to claim it and the resources for the US. So it was so valuable. Yeah. And then they could abandon the island again when, when it was all taken it off. It was claimed for. If there was nobody on it, you could take it. I guess this was grain growing as the American West opened up mm. and the opportunities to grow cereals, that had a huge economic impact, global economic impact, didn't it, when American grain came oh, yes. into the European market? Well, it destroyed a lot of the great English estates. You had the grain coming in from North America and then the meat coming when refrigeration started from South America. You know, for hundreds of years, these landed estates had had no competition. They, was, they could set their own prices and print money. But suddenly they were undercut by the, the cheaper imports. But that perhaps wouldn't have happened had they not been able to get that land because what you want to do is enrich the land don't you to yes. produce bigger yields yeah absolutely that's massive so there is a slightly more disturbing one if you go to europe a slightly more disturbing type of fertilizer that was used going back to the early 19th century it relates to the battle of waterloo so again because people were so desperate to find good fertilizers knowing that ground up bones yeah. are very very good also for the soils mm. It seems that uh, the actual, the war dead from Waterloo were deliberately dug up and exported, including to Britain, and used for fertilisers. And it seems that this might have been something that's happened quite a lot. So when we're talking about burial rituals, <laughs> what happens to bodies and things early on is quite an interesting one. Because there was an estimate uh, of about 20,000 men having died and several thousand horses. They were buried very, very quickly. They had to. They couldn't really take them away. So they were buried in mass graves. And these were, were sort of seen and observed for, for quite a long time. But certainly from the 1820s, there were newspaper reports saying that these were being dug up again and taken, both the animal and the human bones, into England and ground up mm. and used for fertiliser. And they were spread all over. Um, was that something people were open about, or was it a sort of secret shame that you were using them for the, these sort of warriors? For, like for a this? version of body snatching. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's basically so. It was written about in several newspaper articles. So it was clearly not accepted thing. So there, mm. there were scandals really mm -hmm. in these articles, but there were so many of them that it seemed to be quite quite common. I, mean, I guess it's the economics. If you look at the value of a pound of human bone. It's like lead from church rooms or anything. Just look yeah. at metal values. And if when it goes up, 
the lead goes off your roof. It's an economic thing. Absolutely. And it was um, it was so, so valuable that there was an estimate from 1822 that more than a million bushels of human and inhuman bones had been imported into England from continental Europe. And a bushel as about 15 to 20 kilos worth. So we're talking about a hell of a lot. It's an exercise in logistics. Yeah. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like the lead roof. I mean, I'm always amazed with the churches. You know, there's that rash of lead roofs disappearing. I mean, lead obviously is famously heavy, but it is so incredibly heavy. If you ever tried to lift up even something the size of a brick, it's not really possible. Oh, well, do you know mm. the first, when the lead has been nicked from your roof, if you're a vicar, do you know what the first sign is? Water, actually. No, dense in the grass. So you oh, get gangs oh, up on the roof and they roll the lead up into rolls and they oh. push it off the roof and it dents the grass. It's a team gang. It's on a low loader in a way in an hour. So sad. So cat. We have all these other battles. If you think of throughout history, the battles we haven't found and we know the locations of them. Mm. There must be so many dead. You look through these well, records. Thousands. a big one, isn't it? That's, isn't that still the largest on British soil in I terms of so. numbers? Yeah. Well, the rivers ran... I mean, that sounds like legend doesn't it but i mean if a lot of people are slaughtered presumably it was, sort of, it was meant to be roughly a hundred thousand wasn't it as between the two armies but of course it wouldn't have been and bodicea i think that was huge numbers again but who knows you know that it's a nice image isn't it pushing up the daisies of course and i imagine yes. if it's related to an observable phenomenon oh, that yes. fertilized ground produces mm. rich flora That's a very and they, good they point. would people would know that the bones are there they would see them because if they're not unless you bury them very very deep they're well, gonna do you know what come back up the Tauntons, the death dance of medieval art, actually there is a real Tauntons. If, you if you're a custodian of a graveyard, things don't stay put. The ground moves around mm. and bodies move around. Quite often if you're doing a burial in a churchyard, you will dig up a bone that will be sometimes very ancient and uh, you are required in law to inform the coroner and just to establish that this is, there's nothing untoward. Mm. But it happens all the time that stuff doesn't stay just moving around under the ground. Because well, the ground moves yes. and there's various things. Animals, rabbits. Well, and also it's not unheard of for a vicar's dog to come into the vicarage room morning with half a tibia in it. <laughs> <laughs> Anything can Any Daxon's done that recently. I couldn't possibly comment. But <laughs> yeah, it, it does interest me that. I remember doing a burial of a, a neighbouring estate to yours, Charles, in Northamptonshire. And it was a family that had been there since Agincourt, I think. And buried in the same ground that, you know, however many hundreds of years of their ancestors have been buried into, and that that churchyard was rich with life that was fertilized by them, I guess. I Amazing. Know, an interesting thought. Yeah. I think we have a fact. Richard, you're mixing your Williams. Uh, William Beckford made his money, unfortunately, in the slave trade, whereas oh. William Gibbs, the merchant, made his fortune trading in bird guano. Sorry. Charles, you were right, and I was wrong. I got the wrong William. No. I was thinking if you do go to St Kilda, which I highly recommend, in fact I should make it a topic for a future programme, there there was a population that lived almost exclusively on the eggs of seabirds because you couldn't yeah. grow anything there. Yeah. So they were incredibly adept at harvesting seabird eggs and would mm. scamper across these rock faces mm. and live on fulmar eggs and yeah. gander eggs. Well, years, centuries ago, there used to be people in charge of harvesting herons and early in the season when the herons hatched their young these men would shin up the tree and take the young herons they'd already been fed by their parents with fish so you had to expunge that taste so the housekeeping team at the back of the house had a pen where they would feed the baby herons chopped bullocks liver and oatmeal to flush out the fishy taste and then eat them 
But how elaborate. Duck would do, wouldn't it? It's slightly tangential, but it was like in Iceland, which is one of my favourite places to go. You're offered hakal, which is their kind mm. of shark's meat that's fermented, putrefied in its own urine, essentially. It's just, and it is as bad as it sounds. It really is. And I can remember being eating it for the first time and thinking, well, it can't be as bad as it sounds, <laughs> but it tastes like putrefied shark meat in urine is what it tastes like. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking, how the hell did this get to be a delicacy? And then it occurred to me, famine. So maybe at a time of famine, there's one thing that keeps your population alive, like a dead shark left on a beach that mm. normally no one would eat. And somehow that becomes associated with survival. And then somehow that acquires a positive value. And that which was... It's interesting about disgust and... The whole thing about fertilizer, the idea that you would overcome your natural revulsion at feces... Yeah. Very what about human place? excrement? Is that used? Yes, it is. It's used a lot now. And that's when you're more and more now. Often, if you're in the countryside in England now, you'll get a very nasty shock in, in your nasal passage, and that is because farmers are using very, very modified, but it is human waste obtained from sewage disposal. Yes, and, and it's grim. That? It is a grim smell. Does it smell like shit? It smells worse than shit, I'd say. <laughs> really? Yes. Everything bad about shit, but more. It's shit cubed. Really? Is, what about <laughs> worse on the shark? Worse on the fermented shark? I don't know. Is there a scale? Lutefisk. I've not had fermented yeah, shark. Lutefisk. Lutefisk is pretty disgusting. Is it's that one of those almost, things. Is that's that again, thing? it's is a that sort of bird one. This is fish as well, but it's again. What's that one? They keep the. Is it penguin or puffin or something? Oh, puffin, yeah. Disembodied voice. Do you know why the shark meat is fermented? No. Because sharks from that region of the world are poisonous. So not only is it disgusting, it could also kill you. <laughs> it could also kill you. Yeah. Fascinating. So can I share my favourite fact oh, yes. about Sorry, yes, please fertiliser? Do. Yes. You can actually track the use of manuring for fertiliser in human tissues, so in your bones even a thousand years later so we can look at ratios of nitrogen isotopes and that's preserved because that manipulation of the soil goes into the food which goes into your body and leaves a chemical signal so you can actually see that and you can see that people have used and manipulated those soils thousands of years ago and leaves its signature it does it leaves a permanent signature actually for thousands of years so, so someone like you a conceivable future would be not digging up things but looking at spectrography i don't know what you call it what is it called mass spectrometry is one of them yeah so it's all lab work so you take all these bones things that were about dug up decades ago and we can go back to them now and we can find out so much more and they, but they used to just throw the bones away so even from excavations which again maybe maybe that's that same idea as the, the sort of battle dead that nobody cared about they used to excavate graves throw the bones away nobody cares about the physical bones but keep the artifacts and the objects I've got a nightmare scenario for you okay. <laughs> you're digging up viking bones and you can tell presumably also from the bone you might have a sense about the dispersion of that community or where people have been yeah. perhaps but what happens if there's been a lively market in dug up bones for fertilisation in fact the bones have been dumped there and that the trace the signature of the, of I don't know Persia or somewhere comes from later bones that have been used as fertiliser and they disrupt your results and then you announce that the Vikings went to Persia and then they didn't catch. that would be a nightmare absolutely I think you'd have to have a <laughs> hell of a lot of bones coming in for that to actually happen but yeah that would You're keep me awake. You're not ruling it out, I see. No, I'm not. <laughs> it would keep me keep me awake at night. Oh, we have to have a winner again. So Charles was the winner yeah, last week. So who's going to be the undemocratically elected winner this week? It's you, Kat. <gasps> Thank you. I'm questioning a fix. I mean, the bone information was 
Waterloo. Tiny mistake about a William, and I have defeat. <laughs> You're close on the 747. Just to keep you on your toes I'm not next week. you your victory or you, Charles. I'm just saying. As they say. I know where this is going. It's not going to be forgotten. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm busy next week. <laughs> <laughs> but what we're going to do next week is Ooh. the question. We need to set each other mm. some tasks. Yes. Charles, mm-hmm. I'd like you to investigate war diaries, see if you can find any good rabbit okay. holes yes. there. Yes, yes. Richard, you're going to be looking at fonts. Fonts? What it's sort a, of font? Got to be religious, or a isn't it? Baptismal right? font. Religious fonts, baptismal definitely. Fonts. Yeah, I think that's I've got something some you great can... font stories. Font facts. Font facts. Some font facts. <laughs> font facts. <laughs> what about you, Kat? I'm going to be looking at London Bridge. Ooh, actually, that's mm. interesting. A good cross section there. Mm. I like that. The war diaries. I've actually used some of the earliest war diaries, and something I wrote about the early 1700s. When are the earliest war diaries? Well, I, the earliest I found, one of them is by a man called Captain Blackadder, which is so good. No. Yeah, the original Captain <laughs> the Blackadder. And that was in the 1700s. But I wonder, I mean, I actually don't know the answer. I'd be thrilled to know. Here's an interesting, well, we're sort of anticipating our conversation, mm. but people have been going to war and experiencing extraordinary things since the beginnings of human civilization. Yeah. Why did they not write down their reflections until... Say the early 1700s. Why didn't because they had nowhere to publish it. Yeah, well, maybe, I suppose. Maybe they did, but they record? wasn't preserved. I mean, the ones I've seen from, from 1704, which is the Battle of Blenheim, there are only about seven of them. And you think there are actually 110,000 people who fought at the Battle of Blenheim, and seven diaries remain. 110,000 people? It was huge. If you think how small the population was, that's why in, in that period, there were very few major battles because you could lose everything in a day. Actually, at Blenheim, you know, the the ramifications are absolutely extraordinary because Louis XIV was about to become emperor of Europe, really. He was going to knock out the Habsburgs. And just in one day, it was all over. So, well, I can't wait to hear your research for next week. But thank you, everyone out there, for listening to our podcast. Please do leave us a review and let us know what sort of rabbit holes you might want to send us down in the future. So in the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice, curiouser and curiouser. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.